Welcome to the Let's Get Vulnerable podcast with me, your host, Dr. Morgan Anderson, clinical psychologist, relationship coach, love expert, creator of the ESL relationship method, and athletic wear connoisseur. My mission is to help you raise your self-worth, have great relationships, and step confidently into the next level of your life. Each week, two episodes will air featuring expert advice, live coaching, and tips showing you exactly how to improve your life and attract great relationships. You deserve to feel empowered, secure, and loved. So buckle up and let's get vulnerable. Exciting update. I have a brand new free resource. You all asked for it, so I created it. This is a relationship attachment quiz designed to help you understand your patterns in relationships. You can take this totally free quiz now by going to the link in my Instagram bio at Dr. Morgan Coaching and click attachment quiz. And you all know I love to hear from you. So either screenshot and tag me with your result or send me a DM letting me know your result from the quiz. You guys, this is totally free and this will be helpful to you. So go check it out. Can't wait for you to take the quiz and to share your results. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the Let's Get Vulnerable podcast. This is an episode where we're keeping it in the fam. And I have Josh Hustis with me, who is my cousin. He is a professional basketball player. He is a comedian, an all-around amazing person. Um, But I'm just so happy to have him on, and we're going to dive into some really important topics today. What's up, Josh? What is going on, Dr. Morgan? (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. So glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, and those of you that listened to the episode with Bon, (laughs) this Uh. is... Bonnie's son, my cousin Josh. I can't even bring myself to like really dive into that one because <laughs> it's it's just I can't. I don't know. You know, uh, for everybody that listened to it, my mom is a handful to put oh. it lightly. I mean, she is amazing. We love her. Yeah, and I heard she got great feedback, and people loved yeah. on it. So I know I need to get into it. I'm just. We'll see if you get as good a feedback as your mom did. If I can do half as well. <laughs> I'll, I'll be great, but I'm trying to blow her out of the water so I can talk to her about how everybody liked mine better. There we go. There we go. <laughs> and Josh and I go way back. Like we're talking from the time he was born. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Grew up next door to each other. Yep. Yeah. So it's, yeah, long time, basically like yeah. siblings, you know, as close as you can be to siblings without actually being brother and sister. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And we wanted to start out with a little anecdote for y'all. So how many of you remember Captain Hook, the movie? Um, Josh and I loved that movie. And there was this one incident where I was five and Josh was three. You want to take it from here, Josh? Yeah. uh, I mean, you know, everybody's familiar with Captain Hook, Peter Pan, and all that. Um, yeah, like Morgan said, she was five and I was three, and we had recently watched the movie. And for some, for some reason, a three-year-old and a five-year-old were left without adult supervision for an extended period of time. Yeah. Enough time that Morgan, in her infinite wisdom, because she hasn't always been the extreme, extremely great advisor and rational person that you all know and love. As a five-year-old, Morgan reached up on the, on the counter and we decided we wanted to play Captain Hook and Peter Pan. So Morgan grabbed a knife sharpener, like the long, smooth, handled one, and an actual knife. And she handed the knife to me and took the knife sharpener for herself. And we proceeded to kind of battle it out, a little sword fight. 
And I always thought it was so the coolest part of all the sword fighting scenes was when you would take the sword and you'd put it in your um, sheath or whatever you want to call it. So me, I tried to put it in waistband of my pants and just sliced the side of my leg wide open. Oh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've still got a big nasty. He still scar. has the scar. Yeah, twenty five years later, it's still there. Um, but yeah, <laughs> you know <laughs> what? No one died. No one died. Is that the standard now? <laughs> <laughs> Bond, where were you? Where was? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know why oh, a five-year-old yeah. and a three-year-old had enough time to do all that before anyone noticed, but yeah, yeah. Um, you know, good, good memories. Just yeah, and we have a lot more stories like that, of course. And, yeah, but, I'm sure Morgan yeah. wouldn't want me to share. Oh no, once. we'll keep it. We'll keep it in the family <laughs> here. Um, but Josh, I'm so so glad that you're here. And one thing that the audience um, may not know is that you know, you are adopted and mm -hmm. black and grew up in Montana. And there's, there's a lot there in that identity in terms of your experience that relates to what's going on right now in our world. Yeah. Um, I've definitely got a really interesting upbringing. Like you said, um, you know, for everybody that doesn't know, like we said, Bonnie is my mom and she adopted me at birth. Like she was in the hospital the day I was born. So it, it's been me and, you know, me with her since the very, very beginning and um, brought to Montana and we've lived a few different places in Montana, but up until college, I had never lived anywhere else. Uh, and like you said, I'm a black man and, you know, I grew up in a place that I saw the statistics the other day. There's less than 5,000 African-Americans in the entire state of Montana, which is less than 1%. Um, so, you know, I was always an extreme minority and grew up seeing and experiencing some, some different things that a lot of people haven't. So it gave me a really unique perspective on life and a lot of like what's going on right now. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, anyone who spent time in Montana would definitely not be surprised by those statistics. Yeah. It's <laughs> few people are few and far between yeah. it's like one, one person per square mile. It works out too. So there's not many of us, but you yeah. know, it's home. Yeah. yeah. And it's home. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about even that experience of um, having these different intersections in your identity of like, for example, you love to fish, mm -hmm. you love country music. Yep. There's like all these things that maybe people wouldn't typically, you know, assume. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, like you said, I love, I grew up fishing, hunting, listening to country music, you know, doing all the outdoorsy things. And those aren't obviously stereotypical. You know, for yeah. anyone who can't see that's in quotes. Yeah. Black people right. behavior. Um, right. but, in, but, you know, that's what I grew up in. And just to kind of, I guess, start off on the, the topic of, you know, being black growing up there. Like from the very beginning, I remember having very specific memories. I mean, as far back as probably eight, 10 years old of going somewhere, going fishing with my dad, going hunting with my dad, and you would stop it. We'd stop at a store to get worms or to get food, whatever the case may be, when we're on these trips. And I would remember feeling very self-conscious of the fact that I looked different than everybody else that was in the store or in the restaurant, or if we would cross paths with people um, hunting like out in the mountains or that rivers or lakes, like I remember thinking to myself and, and it's, it's weird when I was that young, it was almost like this embarrassing feeling of being you know, like, I look different than them. I wonder like what they're thinking about me. Like, why is he out here? Why is he with this man? Like, why is there a black kid doing this, doing that? Um, yeah. And I remember being aware of that from a very, very early age. And it was 
almost a point of embarrassment for me. Obviously, now I look mm-hmm. back and I'm like, clearly, there's nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed of. But at the time, I didn't know how to process those feelings of feeling different and, you know, standing out like that. Yeah. And I, and Josh, I wonder what you think about this, this idea that, I mean, race is just not really talked about, right? Like it's not talked Mm -hmm. about in our schools. It's not really talked about in our families. I don't know if you remember it being talked about with you, but I certainly didn't. Yeah, no, I, I, um, don't, it wasn't, it it just wasn't this thing that was talked about in the schools and it wasn't talked about much in the families. Like I, there's a funny story my mom tells me about when I was, I think probably about six, five or six years old, I think she said. And she said that one day I was running around the house and I ran up to a mirror and I looked at myself in the mirror and I went, I am black. (laughs) Like it was just not something that, you know, that I I was ever told that I was different. I was never, my parents, of course, never sat me down like, Hey, you're black. We're white. We're not the same color. It was never talked about. And that was when I made that first self-identification of being different than them. And bless my parents' heart. Like they didn't, it wasn't talked about very much and I don't blame them. And I understand because they, of course, both having grown up in small town, Montana, you know, had never, they didn't have the necessary information, the life experience, the perspective to talk to me about what it was going to be like to be my skin color growing up. Mm -hmm. So it was just never talked about. And it was a lot of stuff that I had to learn on my own. Because also, I didn't even have any friends that were black either that I could talk to about it. So it just wasn't something that was talked about. It was just something that I went through and learned as I went and really didn't get much of an education on it until I went to college. Wow. Yeah. You know, and I think about... Even for me, I feel so, so grateful to have you and, and your sister Kava in, in my life, of course. And, and growing up, I didn't know what race was as a, as a young child, right? Um, but then right. I remember this one experience on the playground, and this was Montana City, and you were there. And I, you don't remember, you were really young. Mm-hmm. But I remember another kid saying like, Oh, don't play with Josh. Oh, yeah. And and that was the first time that I knew that there was a, a difference. So right. so I was taught that. I was taught to notice it. Um, yeah. But I think about Josh, like when we think about education and exposure, like obviously I grew up with with you and Kava, and so I've always loved. And I, I think, um, you know, obviously we all have our own biases and I know I have my own, I'll own that, mm-hmm. but, but I didn't develop the stereotype and maybe the right. racism that white people who never come into contact with African-American folks, yeah, you know, they, if, when you don't have exposure, then how are you supposed to have yeah, I mean, beliefs. You know what I mean? Exactly. You learn your beliefs from your parents. Yeah. And if their parents had never been exposed and they learned it from their parents yeah. and you can imagine then you get that far back where the view, what the views are going to be like. Yeah. And it doesn't make it right. I'm not trying to say no, that. of course not. It's, it's a ignorance and education issue more often than not. Like some people go out of their way to choose to hate. Like yeah. Those. But then a lot of people are misinformed, ignorant, yeah. uneducated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the important thing is to say, like, it's not your fault if you were miseducated, um, misinformed, ignorant, right. but it is your fault if you choose to stay that way. If you choose to not do anything about it. Exactly. And yeah. like, that's one thing that kind of on the same vein, like has really been bothering me going through social media is people, the people that are saying like the, um, I don't see color people. Oh gosh. 
those people, like I I obviously, I understand the point that they're trying to convey in saying that. Is that, oh, I treat everybody the same because I don't see color, but it's like, no, you do. You absolutely do. It's You do. It's impossible to say that you don't. Yeah. What you need to say is say, I see color. I see you as a black person. I see you as a white person. I Mm -hmm. see you as an Asian person. I, I see you as an Indian person, whatever the case may be. And at the end of the day, I learned this in my psychology classes, like I'm sure you did. Like everyone has prejudices. They are a natural mechanism in your mind to sort people into categories. Do you remember, Josh, like the IAT test that Harvard put out? Yeah, the the bias test. Subconscious bias Uh, test. Take Mm -hmm. that. Go and take that, everyone. Everyone (laughs) has them and like they're completely natural. You know, like I have them, you have them, everyone has them. It's not something that you can turn off like a switch but what you can do is make the conscious decision to look at a black person yeah mind tells you one thing about that person a stereotype whatever the case may be and then your conscious mind has to step in and say no i know that's not true i'm not going to act on it i'm going to override it yeah that's the important thing to me because you can't control your biases they're there you can't stop them but you can make the conscious decision not to listen to them and act on them Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, and those statements, you know, all lives matter, what, whatever BS <laughs> that is. Um, yeah. You know, I really feel like some of that comes from shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. shame and guilt yeah. really prevents people from actually taking ownership. Yeah. And I think the unfortunate thing is that when people that do get defensive, and go with the all lives matter, things like that. What's unfortunate is that they do get those, if they do get those feelings of shame and guilt, they need to understand that when we say black lives matter or white privilege is real, there's no intent on making people feel guilty about it. Right. It's just, we're asking for recognition. Yeah. We're not pointing a finger and saying, Oh, white privilege is real. That means your life wasn't hard. You were given everything. You had it easy. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that your life was never harder because of the color of your skin. Yeah. It's acknowledgement. It's just acknowledgement. And you can say, yeah, you're right. But you don't need to feel guilty about it. It's not, a, yeah. it's not an attempt to make someone feel guilty. It's just to say, hey, we need help. Please help us. Yes. And I like, and I have sympathy for the, um, I don't see color people because I understand the, the message they're trying to say. But at this point, I've lost sympathy for the all yeah. lives matter people. Of course. Um, because it truly, like, the amount of analogies out there to disprove the all lives matter slogan, like, someone says breast cancer awareness, do you step in and then say, oh, well, we should be aware of all types of cancer? Like, no, we're just February. We're, you know, we're focused on breast cancer. You know what I mean? Or like the best one is this person's house is on fire. Fire department comes and sprays their house. Do you then walk out of your house that's not on fire and say, hey, wait a minute. I need my house sprayed too. All houses should be sprayed. All of them deserve it. Exactly. It's the same concept. This is the one that needs attention at this moment because it's the one in danger. Exactly. And when your time, when you are in danger, yeah. you will receive the same treatment. Exactly. Exactly. So it's hard for me to have sympathy for the all lives matter folks. I feel the same way. But I mean, all you can do is educate, you know? Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. And, you know, we're, we're talking about equality here. We're talking about basic human equality, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's, you know, um, I was talking to one of my closest friends, you know him, I won't say his name here, but you went to school with him. I know who it is. (laughs) I know you do. And he he texted me (laughs) and I was very, very proud and happy to see this, but he texted me and he said, Hey, what more can I do? Yeah. Like to be an ally, like uh, there, I feel like there's more that I can do to help. Mm. And that made me very happy to see 
obviously. And of course, I'm not someone who speaks for the whole of black people. But when you come to me like this, in my opinion, is the best step for any white people that ask, hey, what can I do to be an ally and support you? I love that. For me, it's your voice. Um, Because being born in America as a white, especially a white male, Mm -hmm. whether you like it or not, your voice has more power. You were born, you have been naturally given a higher platform because of the color of your skin. And use that to speak up, whether it's on social media and doing the Blackout Tuesday thing, posting things in support. But I think the most important thing that people can do to be allies is that when they are around other white people and they hear them make a comment that is you know, hurtful, detrimental to the movement, negative, whatever the case may be, to use that opportunity to correct them, inform them, mm-hmm. educate. Um, because undoubtedly, like a white person will most likely listen to another white person correct them more than they would a black person. It would probably mean more yeah. to them because of the power of their voice and Unfortunately, a lot of times when black people try to correct white people on it, it's hit with, oh, why is it always about race to you? I'm not racist, this, that, and the other. But so to me, those are some great things. I'm curious too about this idea that as an ally, I mean, you know, I think a lot of black folks are tired. They're tired of Mm -hmm. educating. They're tired of, you know, having to carry this alone and as as a white ally one of the things you can do is say how can i help i know this is so hard like let me let me mm-hmm. take a little bit of the work and, and help out right absolutely i mean the worst thing you can be is silent in a situation like this um because i think right now silence speaks volumes about if you are silent in moments like this you are on the side you are on the wrong side Yes. You, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. um, now is not the time to be silent. And I think we've reached a breaking point in this country. Mm-hmm. I think it was a perfect storm of events with coronavirus, with so many people losing their jobs, people mm-hmm. dying, um, the state of our political, yeah, you know, um, hierarchy, whatever you want to call it in this country right now, our leadership. Yeah. Mixed with Ahmaud being murdered, Breonna Taylor, and now George Floyd. It was this perfect storm of circumstances that finally broke the, cam- the straw that broke the camel's back. And, um, you know, yeah. black, black people are tired of it. Yeah. And we've tried for years and years to do it mm-hmm. peacefully and ask for help. And yes. unfortunately, it had to reach this breaking point where we need to be loud. I hear you. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate, but I think I'm already seeing some benefits to it, which is positive. And I just hope that change happens because that's the only way that we're going to get back to what we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I I think about too, uh, the power of having this be recorded right like Mm -hmm. because you and i know i mean this has gone on forever Mm -hmm. and now to have video that i mean it's it's there and that is readily shared and we have social media and we have you know yeah however many people seeing this video now we have worldwide protests happening there's just no denying video but you and i know that i mean there's so many things that weren't that weren't recorded, right? And oh, of course. And it's unfortunate that as a black person, you need video to prove yeah. you weren't in the wrong because automatically you are painted as a criminal in the eyes of the crowd that say, well, let's wait till the more information comes out or yeah. they must have done something bad or the cop is given the, you know, the police officer is given the benefit of the doubt in those situations. Um, which is unfortunate, but luckily now, you know, most people have access to a cell phone camera right in their hand to be able to document what's happening. And 
you know, it's unfortunate that it has been, it has taken, you know, we've been fighting this, this fight for civil rights for so, so, so long Forever, yeah. that, you know, obviously it's taken this long to be able to get access to something that can document those things. But at least now we have a tool to fight back. Undeniable proof, right? But it's, which is unfortunate that that's what it takes. It's really deeply painful that that's what it takes. Of course, of course. Um, it's hard. It's, it's scary because you see all the, the voices come out, um, when someone or a black person is killed by a police officer and says, well, they were probably resisting arrest or, you know, um, we need to see the beginning of this video before we can decide or, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the, the police officer is always given the benefit of the doubt over a human life. Yeah. And it's sad because as a black person, you cannot rely on government appointed people to keep you safe. So if you can't yeah. rely on them to keep you safe, who do you rely on? Yeah, I was just, I've been really reflecting on that um, in terms of how do you feel safe as a black person in America right now when this is the relationship with police and law enforcement? You you really can't. It's unfortunate. Um, I mean, even myself, like I've spent, you know, I've been alive for 28 years and I have always been someone who I'm a rule follower. Uh, I've never had detention. I've never, you know, never put myself detention? in, never had detention. I've never put myself in, you know, I was straight A student. Like wow. I was never the person that, that got in trouble. I've always been a rule follower, a listener. Yeah. Yet even I find myself passing a police officer and, you know, holding my breath. Um, I find myself like we've moved into this new neighborhood and I walk up and down the street in the neighborhood and I have to make a conscious decision to make myself seen by people Mm -hmm. and say hello to everyone I see Mm -hmm. and be friendly because Mm -hmm. I don't want to be in my backyard one day. Mm -hmm. Someone think that I've broken in and call the police on me and get me killed because they don't think that I look like I could live here. Thank you for sharing that because I think that is just one example of the mental load and and what it is to try to navigate your own safety as a black man in America, right? There's a million of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think we think about, okay, the intersection between race and mental health too. I mean, just that whole thought process, that is exhausting, you know? It is. And it's unfortunate that, you know, so many people have to think like that, um, to be afraid of the police, to be afraid of even just your fellow citizens, Mm -hmm. that if I give someone the wrong look one day, or I look a little too intimidating one day that that could be what happens that gets me killed. Yeah. Because um, I think about that all the time. Like not only am I a black man, but you know, I'm six, seven, I'm a bigger person. I I Mm -hmm. give off uh, a little bit of an intimidating you know, I'm, I'm a big person. So I'm intimidating yeah. to a lot of people. Anyone that knows you knows you're just a big teddy bear, but <laughs> exactly. But, uh, the, by to a lot of people, just a glance at me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm scary. Yeah. And if I happen to maybe look at the person the wrong way one day, mm-hmm. like history shows us that when black men look at a white woman or a white man the wrong way, yeah. they get killed. And Josh, I think a lot of white folks don't realize um, what that is like to live your life and and have to carry that knowledge with you. Right. Um, Yeah. You know, my my wife, Haley, and I were talking about just the 
the looks we get when we go places, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not as bad some places, but, um, it, it, you can feel the eyes a lot of times mm-hmm. and just what it's going to be like having children, whether if they come out darker and her getting asked if she adopted them or if she's babysitting mm-hmm. right? or if they come out lighter and people asking me if I adopted or I'm a foster parent or, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what could happen. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that in 2020 that that could be a thing, but yeah. we're, un- we're undoing hundreds of years of this racial systematic programming in this country that it's going to take yeah. time. That's so key, Josh, because I, I see a lot of people right now who they want things to change right now. And I get mm-hmm. that because it is so overdue and I, I feel the same way. Um, and at the same time, this is a marathon, not a sprint, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, obviously, things are undoubtedly better today than they were when Martin Luther King Jr. started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly, things are better. Right. Could they continue to be better? Obviously, they can get a lot better. Yes. But like, there have been slaves in this country for over 400 years. Mm-hmm. So we're undoing a lot of damage done over hundreds of years, and that's going to take time. Yes. But I'm, you know, I, I am happy with what I see from our generation as being people who are taking a stand and they're the future of the country. Mm -hmm. And I do think we in the next few decades are going to make huge strides. I feel the same way. But I think there's some guy in Washington that's holding us back. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about a 13 year old African-American girl um, in Chula Vista who organized a protest, right? So it's amazing. I love it. I love the youth. The youth stepping up is, is a light. It is. It absolutely is. And I think more than ever, the youth needs to step up in November because that's the biggest step that we can take in order to fix this, to start the healing and to start that process. Yeah. And and when we think about healing, you know, I always think the the first step is acknowledgement, right? Because 100%. racism has been this wound that our country has just tried to ignore, um, numb from, be dismissive of, get defensive about. Of course. But, but that wound is infected and it is in pain. And we, we have to acknowledge how bad it is. And that's, I think that's where you're saying people are getting loud because we need the acknowledgement and it hasn't yeah. been acknowledged up until this point. So I've been ignored for a long time. And like I saw the, the, I'm sure you've seen it. The great analogy a teacher wrote about like when a child acts up and destroys the classroom, mm. like the first thing you think is, you know, they must be hurting. Like, let me listen to them and figure out the root of this. And right now, that's what's happening in this country is all these people are hurt and they're destroyed by what's been going on. So they're lashing out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's time to, it's time for the people in power to listen. To listen. Because they haven't. And it's been really hard for me seeing people use Martin Luther King Jr. as this symbol of nonviolence as saying he, oh, he was always peaceful, never violent, never rioted, and he changed the world. And I go, so much of history is being ignored. Mm-hmm. There. Mm-hmm. Like this man was assassinated to begin with. Right. He was peaceful, yet he was murdered. Right. And you, it's public knowledge and you can look it up that the CIA was actively trying to discredit him and have him killed. Mm -hmm. Right. You you look back and if you were to go back to the sixties, he was one of the most hated men in America. Yeah. So don't act like a lot of, a lot of the people 
that use him as an example today would have hated him if they were alive then. I hear you. Yeah, he was radical for that time. Radical, very radical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he paid the ultimate price despite his efforts to be as peaceful as possible. But I don't think you can ignore the parts of history that were protests. I saw something that was like, sitting at the front of a bus as a black person was illegal. Sitting at a white counter was illegal. Using a white water fountain was illegal. Mm-hmm. Those people that did that went against that, they were breaking the law and they were hated and arrested mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. But what they did was right. And I think you're seeing a lot of that now that later in history, they will look back and say what they were doing was necessary and right. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. You know, and I think about, okay, so what does it look like for there to be systemic change in this country? And I think one of the things that is just so important, you and I even talked about this in the beginning, is education, right? Like this starts Mm -hmm. with what are we teaching children? What are we teaching them in schools? What I I know my history classes did not go into these. Not outside of February. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, So that needs to change. Of course. Like I obviously black history month is a great step, Mm -hmm. but I don't understand why it needs to be one month. Right. Because black people have been here just as long building this country. Mm -hmm. And so you can't relegate the entire history to one month because that minimizes the impact black people have had on this country. No. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, to not have it be in the curriculum. Right. And I think um, there's a lot of people who could choose to ignore one month um, or not participate in that, but this needs to be learning that happens in our schools. Mm. Yeah. And then yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, the other area that I'm curious your thoughts on is our, when, when we are selecting people to be in the police force, in law enforcement, there needs to be a lot of education and there needs to be a lot more detailed psychological screening and other screening that's that's involved Mm -hmm. in that process because clearly there are a lot of there's a lot of flaws and not there are amazing police officers i know you you and i have people that we know and love but but clearly there's there's some flaws something needs to be fixed yeah Yeah. of course i mean it uh a lot of the the steps that need to be taken like for instance one is there's, there's a lot of leniency in police force in the police force in terms yeah. of a police officer can have complaints filed against them for police brutality, excessive use of force, and they may have, be suspended with pay for a little while. Yeah. Or maybe they, you know, get a slap on the wrist, but then they're allowed to continue to work, which reinforces that there isn't much consequence to doing those things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's big. I think something that's extremely, extremely important is that the use of body cameras holds people accountable. Yeah. Like way too often it's, oh, well, all their body cameras were turned off. Ugh. I think immediately if a body camera is ever shut off while an officer is on duty, they should be immediately fired. Yeah. Because that happens way too often. And then it's just mm-hmm. like everybody shrugs their shoulders like, oops. It, and then it, yeah. I think it's a, it's a cultural thing, right? It's like lack of accountability. And of course. How, how do we change the culture to be accountable and to be multiculturally informed? Mm-hmm. If it's lack of education, like let's get more education and let's create a culture of accountability. Let's have all the police officers take the IAT and talk about it. That's a great start. I think also just presence in communities. I think a lot of times police and communities take on this us versus them, like two separate team mentality. Right. And I think if there was a lot more involvement, especially in inner cities, high black population areas, 
where the police were at community events, not yeah. in an enforcement role, but as in a part in a participation role. You're Whether right. it's you know helping with volunteering, passing out food, whatever the case may be, so that they both form some sort of emotional connection between them. Trust. So it's not just it's some sort of trust. Like okay, maybe we're on the same side because right now, especially right now, that's not the case. It doesn't you go see the police, way. you go the other way. You're scared. Yeah, you know you you fear for your life. And that's yeah. not how it should be. It should be, you should feel your safest when a police officer is nearby. Yes. And I think those are just necessary steps that have to be taken because right now I think there's been a lot of complacency and a lot of forgiveness in the way police enforce the law, mm-hmm. especially with minorities. I agree. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think for healing of that relationship it's not going to be overnight and it will be a long process but it certainly needs to have action items there needs to be actions that are taken not just words absolutely and i think that like we said it's extremely important to remember that it's not going to happen overnight no there's going to be steps forward there's going to be steps backward we have not Mm -hmm. of course we haven't seen the end to police brutality right of course not but if we can lessen it a little bit at a time and we can continue the dialogue, then one day we'll be at a place where we can say America is what it's supposed to be. Because mm-hmm. right now we're, we're not even close. And in all honesty, if you ask anyone that's not white, America has never been right. what people say it is. Right. Like... When was America great? When was America great for everyone? I guess I should clarify. Mm-hmm. Never. We've been powerful, mm-hmm. but there's always been someone marginalized, someone mm-hmm. stepped on along the way. Yeah. And I think America will be great for everyone one day. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's unpatriotic or just like disrespectful to say America's never been great for everyone. Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing that I know you and I would agree on is please do not underestimate your role in this change. Every small action that you can take daily matters um, mm-hmm. and, per- and particularly who you're voting for. So I think sometimes people get complacent, particularly White folks, you know, white privilege, like, oh, I don't know how to help. I don't know what to do. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe you stay out of it. But do do not do that if you actually care about this, right? Right. Make sure you're showing up every day with, with something that, that you can do. Right. Like you, if you are a white person, you may be able to sit back and say, oh, all politicians are the same. One's not going to do more for me than the other. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, people of color don't have that luxury a lot exactly. of times. Exactly. Exactly. There are clear, better. There are clear, better candidates for people of color mm-hmm. than some other candidates. And you know, if you have a person of color in your life, or you care about the issues that are going on, then it's your responsibility to help. Because you know, I think right now, me personally, I think not voting is a vote for the wrong side. Yeah. Because I think it's going to take everyone's effort to help start to right the ship. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That is to say like, oh, I'm, not, I'm just not interested in politics. That is a privilege because there are people whose lives depend on, you know, the, the votes that are made. So... Make depends sure on who's that in charge. yeah, it depends on the the leadership. So yeah, and you know what? I think Josh, one of the things I realize we've been talking for a while, but one of the things is being willing to have conversations, right? Like I think about other ways mm-hmm. you can help, right? Be willing yeah. to have tough conversations with people. For sure. Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's people who, do, yeah. who disagree with you. Um, but have those uncomfortable conversations because you never know what is going to be the thing that's going to actually 
uh, allow someone to change their worldview. So show up yeah. in those conversations. You have to. I mean, a lot of people don't have the luxury to um, just let those conversations slide and not be affected by the consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you have an opportunity to have that uncomfortable conversation with someone that you love or just someone that you just meet on the street, like it's necessary. It is. You you may not reach everybody, but if you can reach one, that's an improvement. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would say, I guess, is important during this time or actions that people can be taking? I mean, I mentioned as if you're a white person using your voice, um, but I think a really big one is if you don't know what you can do, if you know someone who's a person of color, reach out to them. Like when my friend reached out to me about it, it meant the world to me because I knew I wasn't alone and I knew that this person cared about me. They could choose to sit in their bubble mm-hmm. and not let it bother them, but they chose to reach out to me and make, put, make themselves vulnerable Yeah, and ask how they can help. And I think that's an extremely important thing for people out there to do is mm. don't be afraid to reach out to people and ask how you can help. Because that means the world to people to know that you have their back. And silence, now is not the time for anyone to be silent on these issues. I agree. I agree. Yeah, don't let the embarrassment or shame of feeling like, oh, I should know what to do. No, don't let that get in the way of just owning, hey, I want to know what can I do. Yeah, and reach out to those people who you really care about. And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's really great advice. Yeah. And I mean, reach out to Dr. Morgan because yep. she of course has the resources to be able to put you, point you in the right direction. And I mean, anyone listening to this, I will be easy to find on her profile. Yeah. What's so your you Instagram? Have, just Jay Hustis. Jay Hustis. And Jay Hustis. Hustis. Let's spell Hustis for the people. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Uh, this is important. <laughs> Let's spell it out. So Houston is just H-U-E-S-T-I-S. So just J Houston. That's my Instagram handle. I don't really use Twitter. Yeah. Uh, but Instagram, like I am more than willing to point people in the right direction if they have questions because we're all in this together. We're all trying to, you know, be on the same team here and I, I want to help in any way I can. Yes. And, and make sure that if you got some takeaways from this episode that you're sharing it to your story and you're tagging myself and Josh, we would love to kind of see what you felt like you learned or what you appreciated. Um, and please, yeah, send us a DM. We'd love to hear from you. Um, yeah, Josh. And you know what? The other thing I realized I didn't say that I, that I want to say is if you are a person with white privilege, this is a time to listen. This is a time yes. to shut up <laughs> and listen to people of color. It is. And like, like you said, listening right now is the most important thing you can do. Um, have a dialogue. Don't wait for them to finish talking so you can talk. Mm-hmm. It's time to open your mind, listen, get everyone on the same page. Because literally, I think the fate of our country relies on us taking the appropriate steps. Yeah. I agree. Yes. And I really, really appreciate you showing up on this podcast, Josh, and being willing to talk about your experience. And I know that the listeners will really appreciate it. Uh, So thanks for being vulnerable. Of course. Anytime. Like, Like I said is everyone's responsibility to do something about it and being able to share my voice and my opinion is the least I can do um, in any way I can help. Yeah. And um, one more thing before I let you go, let's say you are meeting a random person on, on the street and they're asking you for your best life advice. My best well, life advice? You're just your, I ask every guest I have, I ask oh, them at the end. Okay. So um, just what would be kind of like 
you know, no pressure, obviously. No, no, no. I actually, I'm oddly prepared for this. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) It's something that I've thought a lot about. And Mm -hmm. I think at the end of my life, if I were to, you know, write down what I think is the most important thing you can do as a person in the battle that is life is get up more times than you fall down. Mm, I love that. You know, fall down three times, get up four. Life is going to knock the shit out of you. Mm-hmm. It's going to. But it's all about getting back up after that and moving forward and pressing forward because there's been a lot of times I've been ready to give up. But I am so glad I didn't because, because every time that I got back up, it was all worth it in the end. And my life has been incredible. And I'm so glad I didn't give in to the temptation of staying down when I did get knocked down. I love that. I think that that's, that's so beautiful, so powerful, so important right now as a country, hopefully, as we're getting knocked down, that we can get back up. Let's get back up stronger and united, right? Yeah. Um, and I think one piece about that is like finding finding your why. Why is it that you're going to get back up and allow yourself to connect to that? Yeah, that's very important. Everyone can find a why to to help them. Yes. Yes. Well, Josh, I know we're going to have you back on the podcast at some point because did y'all know that Josh actually went to Stanford and he has a degree in psychology and he's very smart. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he has a lot that he can that he can talk about and we talk all day. Yeah, and I know I know um, your experiences with mental health and um, being in the NBA and how that interacts. Anyways, that's a little teaser. There is so much more that that we can talk about. So I can't um, wait for the next one. Yeah, until next time. Cool. And thank you so much, Josh. My pleasure, Morg. All right. And as always, everyone, I am wishing you high self-worth and great relationships. I'll talk with you soon. You guys, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate each and every one of you. The best way that you can thank me is by sharing this episode on Instagram, Facebook, and making sure that you tag me at Dr. Morgan Coaching. And it would really mean the world to me if you took just two minutes to leave me a five-star review on iTunes. This podcast is not free to produce. And the more that you help this little show grow, the more people will have access to this valuable information. So until next time, I'm wishing you high self-worth and great relationships. Thank you for being part of this community.